want to talk about a weirder world. And, and some of you, um, this is a sort of back to the theological history world. So effectively, we're sort of topping and tailing the conference with big picture theological history. And then the, the filling and the sandwich is, is Peter's exposition of one and two kings, which I, I trust like you, has just helped you as much as it has me. Um, but some of you may know, a lot of you won't. I'm writing a book on theological history at the moment. My main writing project is taking two years on uh, the seven revolutions of 1776 and the theological history of the post-Christian West, basically. And so trying to understand how the world as it is now, in the Western world at least, how it functions, why it's like it is, and how the church can respond to it. And I found an acronym to be very helpful, which I wanted to sort of walk through with you and then trace its trace its implications for a bunch of things in contemporary life that might be illuminating, that might help make sense of a little bit of certain features of our world that might otherwise not seem to be connected. And the acronym I'm using a lot of is the acronym WEIRDER, W-E-I-R-D-E-R, and it's sort of based on some, some work from a actually American psychologist 10 years ago, coined the term WEIRD, W-E-I-R-D, standing for Western Educated, Industrialized, Rich and Democratic. Western, educated, industrialized, rich, democratic. And it's now used quite a lot in psychological literature uh, because one of the points he was making is that the people on whom we do psychological experiments are almost invariably very unrepresentative of the global population because they're all basically undergraduates at universities in Western countries who need a bit of spare cash and therefore will sit and answer questions. And they are, in his term, weird. they are hyper weird, is the, that's the analysis he, he did. And he said, we basically, all of our understanding of human psychology is based on a very weird subset of humanity, which is those people who are Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. And I, and then reading his work and the work of Jonathan Haidt, who will be known to some of you, and I'll come back to that in, in, him in a few minutes. I've actually, I've kind of, my own cheeky expansion of the acronym to add Western educated, industrialized, rich, democratic, ex-Christian, and romantic, because I actually think that what the, the weird acronym misses out is the ideological component. The, the fact, the statement that people are Western or industrialized or democratic is largely a statement of fact about institutions and material forces. But I think that behind that, that along with that needs to be added the idea that the, cult, the weird culture is itself ex-Christian and very influenced by the romantic movement as well and that that effect those two uh, supplement a, a more sort of material or social diagnosis of the way the world is and so I want to walk through those seven features for a moment and, and just elaborate on them a little bit and then look at how that combination plays out when it comes to a whole bunch of different things in the modern world that are collisions of several of them so firstly I think it's probably quite easy to say that the world is western at least the world that I'm speaking to is Western, and some people will define that term in, in very different ways, but I think what I use it to mean, and I think it's pretty obvious this is the case, is that we are culturally and militarily and economically disproportionately shaped by the descendants of Western Christendom. Now, people might use the word Western in other ways, that's fine. Like, if you've ever looked at them, if you ever tried to draw on a map the Western world, you'd realize how very un-Western it is. I mean, apart from anything else, the world is a sphere so how do you have a west like you just keep going like so but what as in what do you mean do you mean Amer the americas but no it doesn't really mean that and australia is in the west and all sorts of other, you know lots of other countries that are well to the west of that aren't and so on but i think if you take it to mean the descendants of western christendom you're probably on pretty safe ground that, that effectively the western roman church and its offshoots and even there you can see how ex-christian the framing is 
is usually what is a pretty good approximation of what you mean by Western. But the whole world has been profoundly shaped by that, even people who have never been in a part of the world that would see itself as Christendom. So you take China, which would look like a huge exception. You think, hang on a second, the rise of China. So, okay, so what's the, who's in charge of China? What's the ruling ideology in China? You say communism, you say, where did that come from? Well, Germany. And where did, it came from, what kind of a German? It came from a German Jew, a couple of German Jews writing together, one of whom had wrote it in a couple of miles, a few miles from here in the British Library, the other one of whom went to Manchester and basically became converted to communism because he saw how grim, sorry, Manchester was in the 1830s. And the two of them got together and wrote the Communist Manifesto and championed it. And, and that's what China, and I know not every, obviously Chinese culture is far, far more complicated and layered than that but that actually the most powerful, along with America, economic military force in the world today is very much the, the product of Western Christendom, even as it would look like a complete alternative to it. In fact, in many ways, it's, as some people point out, that the ideology behind communism is in some ways a kind of hyper-Christian version of social issues without some of the metaphysical commitments, and in many ways more like that than a bunch of countries that would seem more Western or Christian today, arguably. Um, obviously, you go India. You'd say, where, where do basically look at the map today? Where do all the people live? And you go to India, and you'd say, yeah, well, India, of course, not a, in a sense a product of Western Christendom, but very much the kind of country it is as a result of empire and colonialism, and as a result, much more shaped. And I haven't travelled much in India, um, but those who have, I think, would say, yeah, a lot of it bears out the, the indelible imprint of Western colonialism, for better and worse, in all sorts of areas in Indian culture, but. In effect, even countries that don't look at all, quote, Western like most of us would feel, or probably all of us feel, nevertheless bear that imprint in profound ways. Even Japan, which would seem to be the great exception, of course, westernized itself in an extraordinary, I mean, one of the most extraordinary turnarounds that's ever happened in 1868 to 1874, Meiji Restoration. They said, we're going to yeah, bring back the emperor and we're going to forcibly westernize, or they, I think, modernize the entire nation in six years. And they were remarkably effective at it to the point that they were beating the Russians in a war within 20 years and, and regarded by the rest of Asia as a paradigm of what happens when you self-modernize that. And of course, that's with the, the Japanese culture still very different, but in all sorts of ways, the Western Christendom has stamped its mark everywhere, even where people would wholeheartedly reject it as we understand it. Um, the Malaysian, I, I just love, I found this very interesting quotation from the Malaysian lawyer, Shad Salim Faruqi, who's quite an influential guy. Um, but he was in an interview with the British journalist Martin Jack, and he said to him, I am wearing your clothes, I speak your language, I watch your films, and today is whatever date it is, because you say so. Which is a comment even just about that, and that's as a Malaysian again, but the indelible imprint of Western Christendom on the world, even where people might reject it. So the world is in that sense. West is the offshoot of Western Christendom, uh, much, much of it. Secondly, educators. The, the theological history of the West, it has to involve the idea that the world is effectively the brain, the, the, the stepchild of the European Enlightenment, and that education and the pursuit of knowledge independent of certain authorities or traditional authorities, but the idea that you can now find your way to knowledge, you can be educated to learn for yourself and to understand what you think is true about the world, and that education is a public good even when, arguably especially when, it's irrelevant to your vocation. So almost all of us, probably every, I expect every single person in here, had tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of pounds of state money spent on teaching you and me 
all sorts of things that have nothing to do with anything we will ever do for a job. Now, that might see you think, well, obviously, well, state education, that's, of course, that's what happens. But of course, the reality is that is totally unheard of outside of what, you know, the last few hundred years. In fact, the state paying for it is unheard of most places until very recently. And that, that is a, that's an, a commitment, really, of the European Enlightenment and its, you know, the last 250 years of basically saying that society needs to educate itself and that learning and the understanding in and of itself, not just passing a trade on from father to son or mother to daughter, but that you need to know all kinds of information. You need a, a liberal arts education, the Americans would call it. You need to learn all kinds of trivia, including at conferences like this. Now, admittedly, some of us will go, yeah, well, this is related to my job because I preach and teach. But even then, I think if we're honest, you know, what, 10 or 20% of it is? A lot of it's just for interest. It's like, and we do that and we spend our time and, our, and I do it all the time. And we spend our time and our money investing in ourselves and our children and the university students and the nation as a whole to be educated as if it is a good in itself. And we do that in, in order to broaden ourselves and to understand more richly, not necessarily because it's going to make us more effective at our job, although of course it, it may. And intellectually, the methods we use in that process are overwhelmingly the methods and assumptions of the European Enlightenment, even when we would distance ourselves from it, even when we'd say, oh no, I don't accept the assumptions. But basically, you've got to think for yourself. You've got to understand what you think truth is, and you've got to research into your own work. And in order to, as you do that, you will discover more and more learning, but you mustn't do it simply on the basis of an authority that lived a long time ago. So you and I don't, as most people in the Western world would have done, we don't read Aristotle, or as most people in the Eastern world read Confucius and say, this is authoritative because it's old. Yeah. Now, it, it, that would have been true for people in the West of Aristotle and the East of Confucius, still is for many in the East of Confucius for a very long time. And we would assume that the fact something had antiquity and track record would mean it was true. And if we disagreed with it, if you ever read Thomas Aquinas and the way he talks about Aristotle, he doesn't even call him Aristotle, he just calls him philosophers. You know, the great philosopher, because he's, he's been dead 1500 years, he's probably, probably right. And of course, you and I have an almost opposite assumption, even though we hold the word of God in high esteem, we would say, you've been dead 1500 years, probably wrong, probably an idiot, probably a bigot, whatever it might be. But we do, as, do you see what I mean, our, our, our mentality. And what we, because what we've been taught to believe is you must think for yourself. The classic quote for this, Immanuel Kant in his um, kind of paper, essay, was ist Aufklärung, of what is enlightenment, or what, you know, what, what do we make of, uh, enlightenment is an English word, wasn't coined until the 20th century, but in Germany they called it the Aufklärung, the, the enlightening, the opening, turning on of the lights and so on. Kant said, enlightenment is man's emergence from his self-incurred immaturity. Immaturity is the inability to use one's own understanding without the guidance of another. That's what we do when we're babies, he's saying. The Enlightenment motto is therefore, and he quotes the Latin poet Horace, sapere aude, meaning dare to know. Have the courage to use your own understanding. That's, that's what the Enlightenment, in a, in, a, in a paragraph from Immanuel Kant, who should know. And yes, Enlightenment is, you've all got to use your own understanding to pursue your own version of truth. Now, there are a couple of ironic things about that paragraph, actually, when you reflect on it. One of them is it's very strange to say you mustn't take it on authority from anybody else and then quote Horace as your, because he says that you should. And the other one is that it's very strange to say to everybody, you must all pursue your own version of truth 
It's just like that scene in Monty Python, when Brian is saying, no, you don't understand, you're all different. And the whole crowd goes, yes, we are all different. And he goes, no, you're all individuals. And he'll go, we are all individuals. I'm not, shh. And you know that, do you remember that scene? It's basically Emmanuel Kant. And I almost wonder if the Monty Python crowd were riffing off that particular scene, because he literally says, you need to use your own understanding as individuals. But that assumption is baked in, isn't it? That we are, in that sense, the, the, chi the children of the European Enlightenment. We are educated in that sense. Thirdly, we are industrialized. I won't talk much about that. We've touched on it. it it's kind of, that's probably the most obvious transformation of the last couple of centuries, isn't it? We don't work on the lands. Probably anybody in this room, work, as in, the, the, does anybody in this room work on the land, that they are a, a farmer or a, or a fisherman for that matter? Okay, none of us, none of the land or the sea, I should say. And even people who do, which is a tiny fragment of the population, don't get most of the calories they need to survive from what they grow on their own land. That, that pretty much nobody today in the West, or much of the world actually, functions like that. And we are not dependent on human or animal muscles for the vast majority of our domestic and commercial power. So almost all of our power doesn't come from muscles, whereas 250 years ago, that was pretty much the wind and the, wind and the waves could give you a bit of power, but only in very limited locations. Um, but the only portable sources of power were muscles. And so you had to have enough land to feed animals or people. Um, and so if you wanted a job done with, which required power, you either had to enslave people or you had to use animals to do it, in which case you had to feed and house them or you had to do it yourself. That is, we live in an industrial world and that has dramatically changed, as Peter's already said. I, it, at all sorts of layers of the world, it hasn't just affected where you get your power from and you've got electricity. Now it affects far deeper things about the way we conceive of the world and how our instrumental approach to reality, which is, I, if I want to, be, I should be able to design a process here in which the desired outcome is generated by certain things that little levers that I pull and little things I press. I, I ought to be able to get what I want and that affects our, even our view of the malleability of the body and the fact that if I want a body like that, I should have one and all those sorts of things. Are, it's effectively an industrial way of considering reality, that reality is more constructed than it is given in that framework. And it, that affects all sorts of, as you can imagine, sexual ethical issues in the world that we live in today. We are rich, we are incredibly rich. What I didn't realize until I started doing more, a lot more study on this was how little the income of the average income of an individual had changed for the whole of human history until 1750 or so. So I, I think I, I thought that what had happened was that basically things were sort of steadily rich, people were getting steadily richer. I would have thought that people in Shakespeare's day were substantially richer than people in King David's day. And actually the average, the average income was roughly the same between the age of King David and the age of Shakespeare, because what happens is, of course, productivity does grow. Technology means we are able to produce more, but what happens is then people just have more children and all of that benefit is swallowed up again. And so the average person for pretty much all of human history until 250 years ago was roughly equivalent. People lived on what we would, in modern terms, something in the region of $2 a day. And it you know, begins to gradually change maybe between the time of Shakespeare and the time of you know, Thomas Jefferson or whoever, from two, maybe $2 a day to about $3 a day. And then today, so the Elizabethans lived on $2 and the Georgians lived on $3. And today the world lives on about $30 a day and the rich world, like where we are, lives on $100 a day. So in other words, if you track it, sort of, you go start in deep time, um, you know, back in the midst, you know, the mists of Genesis and go all the way through, it's just doing this flatlining, 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 and then tiny, tiny little uptick 
and then boom, and you watch the and you see the I mean charts of it are just you have to use logarithmic scales because it's such a dramatic transformation. And obviously that has a lot of implications for the way we think about our own power and our own autonomy and our own rights and God and all sorts of things. Fifthly, democratic. So Western, educated, industrialized, rich, democratic. We believe choices are sacrosanct. So we don't just get to choose our own government. That's obviously the most obvious expression of that value. But we believe we get to choose not our breakfast cereals, obviously, and our fabric softeners and our marriage partners. And that, to the point that a lot of Christians still struggle with the idea that not being able to choose your marriage partner, which, by the way, I did, and I'm sure almost all of us did, but a lot of people would find the idea that you didn't do that. It's a fundamentally anti-Christian idea. Like you've got to be able to choose your marriage partner. Now, obviously, I'm very happy I did, and she chose me, and so on. That's all great. But that's, we've almost wired that in as if that is a, a fundamental Christian conviction about the world, rather than simply the way that our culture does it, because we have a very choice-led way of thinking about reality. So we choose our marriage partners. We choose our career paths. So my dad's sitting down here, and I, I, I don't think it was ever asked, ever expected of me that I was just going to go and take on the family business or become a lawyer or whatever those things, certainly not because he did. I don't think that would be like, I don't think most of us grow up. Some of us do do the same things as our, our parents, but not because there's a, a sort of a baked in assumption. And this is related to education. You educate people so you can choose whatever you want. You don't need to be hidebound by the fact that your father was a tanner, so so are you. And that democratic impasse is obviously right the way, runs right the way through our culture. And you then, of course, get to choose things like family size. Choosing family size is, a, again, it's feed through into sexual ethics. It's, pr I hope, pretty obvious. And obviously, that comes through in obvious ways, like things like abortion or contraception and so on. But even just that those people who would say, no, I wouldn't have an abortion, and I'd actually be quite discerning about my use of what kinds of contraceptions I might or might not use would nevertheless hold it as a pretty fundamental right to determine how large you wanted your family to be. That would be very widespread in our culture and in our church. And you get to choose, of course, your religious commitments. So my children can come home from school and say, well, obviously, it's, it's, just, you know, it's just a choice. That's just, you know, that's just your opinion that we just get to choose. That's, that's what everyone's taught. And even we might think, it. no, you need to get to the day where you choose for yourself whether to believe in Jesus or not. Now, you might or might not agree with that sentiment, you might not put it that way, but the reality is most of our forefathers would not have thought about it like that. They wouldn't have said, no, of course, you, you, know, you can't imagine a lot of church fathers, and you know, to the extent that I mean, not all of them had kids, some of them were celibate, but the ones who did, to be able to sit sitting down with them and say, now you need to choose for yourself. That's just not the category they'd use, is it? Um, and of course, those things are so endemically part of our culture that the Declaration of Independence says, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident. It, it's very obvious to, it's self-evident. Any thinking person can see this is staringly obvious. It's not something we even need to defend. And of course, those self-evident truths have, in, by and large, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness have actually grown out of fundamentally Christian assumptions about what the world is and life and love and how to find it. We are ex-Christian, which is what we've been talking about already in multiple angles, and I won't elaborate on that further. And then finally, we are romantic in the sense that our, our values have been heavily influenced by the romantic movement and particularly the inward turn that takes place. And I, I think in, some would say that actually the inward turn begins in a way with Protestantism and then Lutheranism refracted through German pietism in the sort of 17th and 18th centuries grows into the romantic movement, which I think it does. I think romanticism is mainly a German 
innovation. Obviously, that's not, the, not all the key thinkers are German, but that's primarily where its emotional resonance comes from. They're sort of, you know, dark forests in Lutheran homes and pietist spirituality in 18th century Germany. And it grows and effectively is now the, the way that Disney movies function, which is effectively that there is the beautiful light that is within you needs to be expressed, that in identity is chosen and constructed rather than given to us from outside. If we want to change our bodies, as I said, and that might be very serious, you know, I want to, I want to change my sex or it might just be I want to have a tattoo, but I'm going to, I'm, I get to perform and express what I am and put that out to the world. And I might want to change my name. I might just want to, you know, identify as somebody else. I actually might have a very different identity on my LinkedIn profile as I do on my Twitter page. And I might actually change my identity on my Facebook page because I want to, change the way that I am perceived. I can put out there something. This is something we all do to a limited extent, I think. Um, we see great art, like the Romantics would, as creative and imaginative, rather than as imitative and representative. So we don't say our job as an artist is to see and then to represent beautifully. We say it's to come from within, not from without. It's a, the impulse comes from the, the, the dreamer doesn't it? The inside rather than the outside world. We take personality tests. It's a very romantic idea. It's a, we, we're gonna, I'm going to use a, an external standard to try and find out and learn more about me. We believe that authenticity is a better word than conformity. And we, again, a lot of people would think that's a Christian thing. It's a Christian value, authenticity. Yeah. If you ask Western people, and you do surveys, and you, you ask Western people, Complete the sentence, I am blank. And what they found is that Western people will fill that in with a combination of their interests, their achievements, and their personal characteristics. And they will rarely fill it in with their genealogies or their relationships. Whereas if you, people, people who are much less weirder uh, in other parts of the world will do the opposite. They will, they will assume that I am Andrew, son of Charles, Married to Rachel, three children, this is where I fit, in this village, this is where I was born. That's how we'll map ourselves, and that's what we understand identity to mean in other parts of the world. Whereas in our part of the world, we will say, I am, you know, describe yourself using the phrase, I am, I am a, I'm a pastor, I, I went to Cambridge University, I am interested in these things, I'm an extrovert, I am whatever it might be. And so that's how we, we tend to do things. So we are weirder from top to bottom, that's the claim. And we can tell that story in, you'll be unsurprised to hear, Psalm 105 or Psalm 106 versions, right? Psalm 106 version of the weirder world is to see the fact that the world is like that as a judgment story, effectively saying God has, you know, Psalm 106 terms would say they had a wanton craving, therefore God gave them over. You know, that, that effectively the reason the world is weirder is because of failings in the Christian church which God has judged us for. So Christendom was a mile wide and an inch deep you know, throughout the medieval period. People didn't really believe it. They were, you know, some of them did, but most of them didn't. It was, just, it was very, very challenging. It covered the whole of Europe, but not really. And as soon as Christians discovered that there were lands in the New World that they could uh, expropriate because the populations there had less technology and organization than they did, the Europeans pounced. And they used Christian language and rhetoric to do it. And some of the formal bodies of the church said, no, you should, really shouldn't do that. But they said, yeah, that, that, no one really expects us to take that seriously, so off we go. And we will obviously kill, sometimes deliberately, sometimes accidentally, kill the local population and take all their stuff, including their silver, which we will then use to 
expand our navy and our military and to muscle in on the spice trade in South Asia and uh, take over trade routes and peddle drugs to the locals in China and carve up Africa and justify all of it using Christianity. And meanwhile, while that's going on politically and around the world, the Reformation is triggering the breakup of Christendom into a thousand factions, which then fight so savagely over which specific version of Christian theology is correct that secularism in the end comes to seem like a more attractive alternative. And therefore part of the impulse for the modern secular state is when you have Christian confessional states, the 30 years war happens. So we mustn't allow that and it's better to be pluralist than allow that to happen again. In the mix of, mixture of that, science, this is the Psalm 106 version, right? The, the dark side version of the story. Science and industry enable Christian people to need God less and less and to turn him into a God of the gaps. You just get shunted further and further to the margins while still claiming to follow him and enables Christian peoples to create industrial monsters, which are often best reflected in fiction, like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein or Tolkien's Uruk Hai. You know, that is what, isn't it? We're back, the fire, Christopher Lee standing there going, the fires of industry and there's all these orcs coming. And it's obviously it's not difficult to see the analogy, is it? That is, that's industrial culture crashing into the green and pleasant land. It's pretty much Tolkien's version of Danny Boyle's 2012 Olympic ceremony. The world was all green, and then industrial Britain rose up and made everything dark satanic mills and so on. And that's, you know, effectively Blake, Tolkien, and Danny Boyle are all basically saying much the same thing when it comes to the story. Even Chernobyl, if you see, that's one of the best TV shows of recent years, but that's, a, again, another sort of powerful metaphor of the damage that happens when people believe that they can control the world. And that's effectively all because thinly Christianized people with a veneer of faith eventually go, we don't, we'll use God as long as we need him to do stuff, but more and more we find we can do it, we don't need him to do it. And the inward turn, as I say, is generated again by Protestantism, uh, which means that we become increasingly narcissistic, self-absorbed and individualistic. And so our great art moves from Michelangelo to Van Gogh to Gustav Klimt or whoever to Tracy Emin and her bedsheets. And we see that's basically what happens when you become narcissistic. The trajectory of great art just falls off a cliff. The Lord has judged his people. It's the Psalm 106 version of the story, right? But there's a Psalm 105 version of the story as well. There's the faithfulness of God in the midst of the, the world becoming weirder, you might say, which would be more like, remember the wondrous works that he has done for his steadfast love endures forever. And this story goes something more like this. In the Middle Ages, there were a tiny number of Christians outside of Europe, as Peter was alluding to through Philip Jenkins' work, but very, very small scattered communities outside of Europe, really. And they were isolated and they were under intense pressure, much of it from Islam and or from the Mongol and Turkic warlords in Asia, so that Nestorian missions had reached a very long way, but had been not just driven back, but almost wiped out by a combination of Mongol. And so people like... Genghis Khan and Kubla Khan and Tamerlane and so on. And now, that, that was where we were when this process started, and now there are over 2 billion Christians worldwide, and a small minority of them are in Europe. God in his providence has seen to it that much of Africa, parts of Asia, and most of the Americas and the Pacific would come to faith in his son, and do that through the failings in some ways and some of the successes of European people. The rise of modern science, which has not only been bad, it's not only been Tolkien's Uruk Hai and Chernobyl, the rise of modern science, I think many of us would say, has done a lot of good things as well, and it grew in Christian soil. And it has enabled us to double the life expectancy of the average person on planet Earth, and make people, make the population of the Earth seven times larger 
and the average wealth of the population of the Earth 10 times larger, in other words, a 70-fold increase in productivity, so that people now live on average to the age of around 70, rather than on average to the age of around 30 or 35 worldwide. And that's happened in 250 years, and people would say, that's a good thing. And that's technology and medicine and farming and developments and all sorts of things. And that grew, that exp expansion grew in Christian soil, and thanks be to God, the argument would go. Just if we could put up the first um, slide, Tarek. So this is a, a theological analysis of why the modern sciences have, kind of, has become quite a well-known comment from A.N. Whitehead, who's not a believer at all himself, but in his book, Science in the Modern World, he says, not that. We will look at that in a moment. No, not that. The, the, the new one, the one that I did this morning. That one there, okay. I don't think, however, that I've even yet brought up the greatest contribution of medievalism to the formation of the scientific movement. I mean the inexpungible belief that every detailed occurrence can be correlated with its antecedents in a perfectly definite manner, exemplifying general principles. Without this belief, the incredible labors of scientists would be without hope. It's this instinctive conviction, vividly poised before the imagination, which is the motive power of research, that there is a secret, a secret that can be unveiled. How has this conviction been so vividly implanted in the European mind? When we compare this tone of thought in Europe with the attitude of other civilizations when left to themselves, there seems but one source of its origin. It must come from the medieval insistence on the rationality of God. And that is sort of quite a well-known sort of research of this. It's quite a well-known comment because what it effectively saying is you don't get the predictability and consistency of modern scientific method without Christian theism. Now, if we go back to the stained glass window, you also, of course, it owes itself not just to modern Christian theology, but to modern Christian history and expectation. This is a, I love this stained glass window, because this is um, from the cathedral at Chartres, which I just feel is one, this wonderful metaphor of why the, the Dark Ages should probably be called the Light Ages, um, when you see Chartres or see this window. But uh, the reason I put it up there is because you probably heard the saying of Isaac Newton that he said, if I've seen further than other people, it's because I've been standing on the shoulders of giants. It comes from a 13th century uh, guy called Bernard of Chartres, who was the first person to use that metaphor and say, you can, we can see further because we're standing on the shoulders of others. In other words, it's not an enlightenment. So when Isaac Newton died, Alexander Pope's epitaph for him said, it was on that previous page, I'm going to forget the exact phrasing, um, nature and nature's laws lid hid in, lay hid in night. God said, let Newton be, and there was light. That's how Pope described it. Newton's such a genius that he just, out of nowhere, like the Big Bang, pfft, here comes knowledge. And of course, Newton didn't see it that way. Newton said, no, I've seen further because I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. And he got that metaphor from a medieval theologian called Bernard of Chartres, and it's reflected in that stained glass window. And the stained glass window is wonderful because what it shows, if you look, you look at the inscriptions and could read Latin, it's basically got the apostles standing on the shoulders of the prophets. And so you walk across it, this is the, the, uh, the, just south of that massive rose window uh, at Chartres. Um, and so it's got St. Luke, if you can read it, I mean, it's distant for you, I know, but it's got St. Luke sitting on the shoulders of Jeremiah. And then it's got, um, so that's Matthew standing on the shoulders of Isaiah, and then so on. So basically the four major prophets. And that image, Isaac Newton not only said, I've seen further because I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. It's not just that I've been able to do science because I've got the wisdom of others, but I'm actually even going to borrow the metaphor that I'm using to make that point from medieval thinkers and artists and churchmen. Which I just think is a lovely way of making the point that 
yeah, our, our scientific success has grown out of Christendom, and there's the grace of God in that. We've got this, Mike said the same about Christian eschatology, that actually the shape of the Christian story is uniquely, if I can use this word without an acronym, progressive, in the sense that, as John was reading earlier, the yeast goes into the leaven, and then it just filled, gradually transforms until the whole 60 pounds of flour is all leaven. That's not the shape of history in most Eastern religions, is it? This is more cyclical than that. In fact, in Greek thinking, it's like, well, you have the, as reflected in Nebuchadnezzar's statue, you have the Golden Age, and then you get the Silver Age, and then you get the Bronze Age, and then you get the Iron Age, and it's all <laughs> feet of clay. But that's not the way that Christian people think about the future. They think, no, God ultimately is going to bring his kingdom to the earth, post-mill or not, and when he does, that, that will reflect a better future than we have now. And when you put together that sort of rational God together with the Christian heritage of learning and the idea that we might be able to see further because we're standing on their shoulders, and put that together with the hope that the world will one day be better, you get the kind of people who say, do you know what, I'm going to sail across the ocean and see if there's anything there. And do you know what, I'm going to try putting that together with that and see if it blows up. And, I, and, it, and genuinely, and Europe, European science, which is so curious without that foundation, is ultimately in itself, you might say, the result of God's grace. And even if you wanted to see how... God given the modern age is, you might say, yeah, if, if in Genesis chapter one, the commission is now go be fruitful and multiply and that, ble and that blessing, much of it is I'm not a prosperity guy, but blessing in Genesis is reflected through large families and material prosperity. If you said, well, the number of image bearers on earth has multiplied by seven in two centuries and the amount of wealth they have in li long life, that's a pretty big sign of favor in Genesis, isn't it? And that's multiplied by 10, you know, long life has doubled, prosperity is multiplied by 10, population is multiplied by 7. You'd say, that's a lot of blessing, wouldn't you, in, in its own way. The gospel has been clarified as well as the church been fractured. Uh, the gospel has been clarified through the Reformation. It's now growing virtually everywhere outside the West. And the reason it's not growing in the West is, I think, a mixture of state churches and low fertility. Um, and so one of the challenges, of course, of our generation is that if people, as people get richer, have fewer children, and people who have fewer children are less likely to believe in God, socially speaking, I don't mean individually, but at a, at a macro level, that poses challenges to the church, and it does. But even in Europe, that growth, that leaven in the lump has thoroughly transformed civilization to the point that, as we saw earlier, our, our, our immoral imagination is Christianized from top to bottom, even when we deny that it is, and we don't understand why. So you might have the Psalm 105 version and finish. Instead of saying, the Lord has judged his people with the weirder world, by saying, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. And of course, I think both are true. We could also tell the story, not, you know, we tell the story doxologically, uh, like Psalm 105. You could tell it prophetically, like Psalm 106. You could tell it, and as Peter's been talking, I've been thinking, yeah, we can also tell the story typologically based on the recurring patterns of history that Peter's been talking about. I've just alluded to the Genesis version. You might use the Genesis type, the seed, and the blessing and favor and prosperity and expansion of image bearers and say, actually, the theological history of the, of the West is a, is a Genesis-like story of go forth and multiply, and the fear and dread of all the earth shall be upon you and your seed and as you expect. Now, you could tell it that way. Of course, what that will do could, on its own, would lead to a fairly triumphant, you know, let's plant flags and let's take over continents and yarrah, rah, don't worry, this is our promised land and we're Israel and Native Americans are the Canaanites or whatever it might be. And that you get problems when you do that. So you then also have to see it not just as a Genesis story, but perhaps as an Exodus story. 
because in a sense the western world you might think is israel delivered from captivity but then quickly turning to golden calves you might say yeah that's that is kind of what we've done but in another sense you'd say no the western world is pharaoh the western world is the oppressor who has oppressed other nations and killed their children and ruthlessly made them work for us as slaves you can't read exodus 1 in the context of the last two centuries and not see the parallel of what if you know if you, I, I used it when i preached on it recently in this church the slave bible which was again in clerkenwell 1808 i think a few miles from here slave bible edited and you're literally reading genesis 45 you turn the page and you find yourself in exodus 20. they've just literally removed exodus 1 to 20 and the end of genesis from their bibles and given them out to slaves so that no one knows that actually we're the oppressors the pharaohs and the people we are holding on sugar plantations in the west indies are the slaves who deserve freedom so we might then go oh actually there's a pattern of history there and of course we all know what happens to pharaoh in the end and what happens to the oppressed peoples is that god hears their cry and he raises up deliverers for them he raises up liberators raises up moses is in their, from their, among their own people and then at the same time he takes our horses and riders and throws them into the sea and judges the empires that have done all of this and says you know you are yourselves are going to suffer the consequences and who knows world war one world war two i think one of the most fascinating pieces of theological history i've ever read is from rudyard kipling who obviously doesn't get everything right on this issue at all if you read him but it's fair from our from our perspective anyway but it's very interesting because theological history is very easy to do after the event but kipling's one of the few who did it while the events were going on and this astonishing poem he wrote recessional which is uh, in 1897 which is just a wonderful three level word to entitle a poem in celebrating the queen's jubilee because obviously at one level a recessional is simply the, the piece that you play when people are leaving the church at the end of the ceremony that's what the recessional is but at another level you'd say queen victoria is going to recede and then at a third level so are we so is this empire it's going to recede surely and he wrote these, I won't read it all, but just these astonishing words, which I just think so beautiful and very much make you think, has he got in his head that the Western world is about to be thrown with its horses and riders into the sea? And I think he does, even if he's using a different biblical image to make that point. The tumult and the shouting dies, the captains and the kings depart. Still stands thine ancient sacrifice, a humble and a contrite heart. Lord God of hosts, be with us yet, lest we forget lest we forget far called our navy this is in 1897 far called our navies melt away on dune and headland sinks the fire lo all our pomp of yesterday is one with nineveh and tyre judge of the nations spare us yet lest we forget lest we forget for heathen heart that puts her trust in reeking tube and iron shard all valiant dust that builds on dust and guarding calls thee not to guard for frantic boast and foolish word by mercy on thy people lord and it's this incredibly famous poem given as basically summarizing the end of the victorian age but obviously within 15 years you will literally have a ship that represents the massive west power of western ships it's just going to hit an iceberg and fall to the bottom of the sea and two years after that all the people kipling's talked about are going to massacre one another for four years and lose their empires and you think wow that's theological history in real time and it's effectively seeing us not only as genesis people but as exodus people and we could go on we could tell a leviticus story about the way the laws and liturgies of the world have changed you could tell a numbers story about 
our story being that of testing God's testing God in the wilderness ten times over uh, in sexual immorality and cowardice and all these things that we've done. You could see over and over, you could just tell the story multiple different ways. So I think the story of the weirder world can be told doxologically, Psalm 105, prophetically, Psalm 106, typologically, as Peter's been teaching us, the recurring patterns of history. And then I think you can tell it genealogically as well, which is the I, a little bit Psalm 107, that we can tell the story to explain how we got to where we are, which is what this project I'm working on is, that the weirder world ideas. Try and say, this is why you're like that. And we looked at one session, that of whatever we call it, intersectionality in session one, and to try and see that I think if we, we will address this issue best if we see it both as a Christian and as an idolatrous phenomenon at once. That, that, that's my suggestion to you on that one. But here's another example and I said I'd come back to Joseph Henrich and Jonathan Haidt. Um, could we put up that third slide with the two blue boxes on it? Um, this is another example of how seeing our genealogy uh, as, the, as weirder people helps us make sense of our world. And I think it can, uh, it's a really interesting idea from Joseph Henrich's book, The Weirdest People in the World, which came out this last year, and Jonathan Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind, which many of us may have read. By the way, I can, if these slides would help you, I can send this to anybody who'd like it. If you just get in touch with Judith and say, could you send the, the notes, then I can do that. So you don't all have to take, you can take photos. You may be taking photos of other things or just selfies. Who knows which way the camera's pointing? Um, but uh, Andy LaRue's just been there all day just, just snapping himself. Hi, mom. Um, but jo Jonathan Henrich and Jonathan Haidt, Joseph Henrich, sorry, and Jonathan Haidt both do this. They, they effectively say, you've got to see the way we think and the way we moralize as being outgrowths of a very specific kind of culture and Henrich in particular traces all of it to the western church which is why I think it's okay to add to turn weird into weirder because I actually think he does he's effectively saying this is because it was Christian so Henrich who's the guy who coined the term weird in the first place you know one of the most fascinating es essays of you know a psychology papers you will ever read it's the most stunning opening line um but I won't quote it um and he said our brains are wired differently as a result of the a result of the, the Western educated, industrialized, rich, democratic. Like that kind of world has made our brains different in important ways. And so what a classic example is the framed line test, which is that box up in the top. What they do is they show Western and Eastern people a square with a line in it, and the line is different in size proportionately to the square. And they basically then make the square a lot bigger, and they have to and the person has to adjust the line either relative to the size of the square or relative to its absolute length. And it's a psychological test they do. And what they find basically is that Western people are better at the absolute task and Eastern people are better at the relative task. So the Japanese people do that, do a, a, a brain test and they're better at scaling the line relative to the square because they see the whole better. And Western people are better at preserving the absolute length of it because they see things more as discrete objects. It's got a famous example of it. It's basically Western people are better at seeing trees than wood. Yeah, we're just our brains are like that. No, we're not, we're not trying to. It's not about, our, oh, no, well, that's just because, you know, you grew up in a home like that. It's, no, no, our whole culture has made us think like that. And he, that's a very famous example, but he gives dozens of examples. And the book is full of charts about ultimately saying that weirder people are, for instance, better at delayed gratification. You know, that from a very, very young age, toddlers, you know, the sweets that, you know, you, have, you can have two if you don't eat that one in the next five minutes, that toddlers in Western cultures last longer, that Western people generally are better at delayed gratification because of ways in which Christianity over a very long period has rewired our brains. 
Uh, we are more interested in self-esteem than in other esteem, which is why we are more likely when we've done something bad to lose sleep about it than we are to lose face. That's not, we don't generally worry about losing face. We, we are more impartial and we regard nepotism as a very bad thing. Those of us who've traveled in, large, in other parts of the world or lived there, well, this would be a very obvious point that the, that the Western value of impartiality, which is my mum and dad are there and none of you knew that they were until just now, and I haven't treated them any different to anybody else, would be not just odd, but very dishonoring in a lot of cultures. Whereas in Western culture, you think of it as normal that they are treated like everybody else. And actually, if I got a, use my influence to get my son a job or my wife a promotion or whatever, people in the West would think that was a bad thing. But in much of the world, that's actually the honoring way in which you treat people. And that, Henrich argues, for all sorts of reasons, is an outgrowth of Christianity. Would you give false testimony in court to support a relative? The Western people think, that's awful. That's like a... And then, of course, you read, the, read Proverbs and you see, what does Proverbs say about bribery exactly? And you think, well, it seems to be, a, at the very least, a bit ambivalent on the practice, depending on which proverb you're reading, right? We've all read it and... Right, the the famous one, which because it's famous because it got into the West Wing, and then this fantastic scene where Martin Sheen just explodes over the phone and yells at a diplomat in the UN. It's like because they, there was this real life experiment in New York between 1997 and 2002, where the city decided we are not going to tow the cars of diplomats who don't pay their tickets because it would cause a diplomatic incident. So for five years, you have a real life experiment of whether or not different nations pay their parking tickets if they know they won't be towed if they don't. And what we found is that Sweden, Canada, UK, and Australia, in five years, not a single parking ticket to any diplomat. Egypt, Chad, and Bulgaria, 100 tickets per member. <laughs> and obviously, the point, one of the points they make is that is closely correlated to what we would call, they might not, corruption in a given country. And Henrich is just laying out all the data, saying all of these things are the ways in which being weirder has, weird, to be fair to him, has rewired our brains. We just think differently. And he says that all of this goes back to the Roman Catholic Church and Gregory the Great in 597, which is what makes it such an interesting example of why, that's why it's theological history, not just nerdy, interesting psychological research I've dropped in on tenuous grounds, because he says, actually what happens is the Roman Catholic Church championed various things that over time completely transform first the domestic and then eventually the national context. And the way they do that, they, they obviously champion monogamy which you'd say, well, that obviously, but no, lots of large parts of the world are, still are, certainly were polygamous. Um, taboos against cousin marriage. Bilateral, as opposed to patrilineal descent. That is, that the, you know, the, the family is brought together by the, the union of two, and actually, you trace your lineage down two lines, not just one, as I've, I've just had, my mother and my father, right? We all do it. Nuclear families become a thing, instead of small components of a much larger extended family. Neo-local residence, which is that the husband and the wife leave their father and mother and are united to one another and they then set up a new home. And Henry's is arguing all of those, what all of those things do is that they destabilize things like polygamy, cousin marriage, women get, begin to get married and have children later, families get smaller, and all of those things over time mean that the, net, the social network of the individual is smaller in the domestic sphere and therefore they have to form networks in the sort of public sphere, which means that Europeans start to choose their relational networks rather than inherit them, and they start to form voluntary associations with people they didn't previously know, like charter towns or universities or monasteries or guilds or convents, 
And artisans and merchants can't trade on the family name because the family network isn't very large. So what they have to do is get very high reputation for trustworthiness and efficiency and delivery on promises because if they don't, no one will trust them, which isn't the case in an extended family environment. And as a result, impartiality, cooperation, precision, punctuality and diligence are all heavily incentivized and you end up changing, you know, so you'd see by, by 1400 or 1500 by the time European towns have their own clocks and begin to start, you know, literally running the time by a set point, you're thinking, yeah, that's very different from what an equivalent town now looks like in China or, Mughal, you know, India or Persia or wherever. So in other words, our brains have been, this is, this is like a genealogy. It's like trying to help people see because of, this is how Christianity has shaped the world as it currently is. And then finally, before I wrap up, morality, Jonathan Haidt, some of us have read, who's read The Righteous Mind? That's probably been read by a few more, yeah. Um, the Righteous Mind is just fascinating, fascinating book. It's the best of sort of popularizing academic research. And um, Haidt gives a number of examples of this when it comes to ethics, which I always use when I teach on ethics because these stories are so fun. And he, he basically runs these experiments like he says, okay, uh, so a man goes to a supermarket, buys a raw chicken, brings it home, has sex with it, and then eats it. Is that morally wrong? And he asked people from different cultures that question. And obviously, almost all people in the world, apart from very weird people, like the university students who normally fill in these surveys, say, of course that's wrong, it's disgusting. To be honest, I feel defiled by you having told me that story. <laughs> and what happens in the weirder world which we live in is people say, well, it's a bit gross, but it can't be wrong because it's not hurting anybody. And he uses that example as a springboard, gives lots of other examples of that, that protect, having protected sex with your sister, is that wrong? basically sets up this experiment and it's, and it's fascinating because he gives transcripts of interviews with people as the young person he's asking is basically going, uh, well, yeah, because maybe they'd have, you know, children with, you know, their genes would be bad. And he said, no, no, it's protected sex, so it's fine. And then she goes, oh, and basically she's trying to find a reason why it could harm somebody because she knows it's wrong and she doesn't know why. And she doesn't have a moral framework to account for how anything could be bad if it wasn't hurting somebody. And neither can our culture. Which is why it's so difficult. That's why gay rights in particular is such a challenging issue because it's not obvious who the victim is. And people in Western culture don't know how to make moral judgments without a victim. That's why one of the reasons why, by the way, I have more hope for progress on something like abortion or even on trans rights than I do on gay rights at the moment. So I think the LGB and the TQ, TIQ are different because actually on, on trans rights, you say you can't, there is a victim. It's this intersex woman who can't run in the Olympics, meanwhile this man who's decided he's going to be a woman weightlifter can. So there is a victim, but in, in Western culture we generally can't do ethics if there's no victim. And what Haidt says is that weirder people use a much narrower range of moral frameworks than most societies do, and so while most societies have six axes for thinking about right and wrong, care, harm, fairness, cheating, loyalty, betrayal, authority versus aversion, sanctity, degradation, liberty, oppression. Western people only use the first two, and almost all of it is in the first one. So when Western people hear someone else saying, you can't do that because it's disgusting, Western people say, it's not a category for me. What are you talking about? You can't have sex with a chicken, that's disgusting. What? Who's it harming? Because Western people just don't have the framework to think through, and that's as a product of all of this, which ultimately means that Christianity is currently a bit of a victim of our success from an ethical, moral, psychological point of view. And I think it has huge explanatory power in the modern world. My favorite real-world analogy or uh, instance of this is Zinedine Zidane headbutting Marco Materazzi during the World Cup final. 
because you're the Western media go completely bananas. Like, you fool, you're their best player, you're the best player in the world, and you've got yourself sent off over some stupid little insult, and as a result, you've lost your country the World Cup and all of the wealth and prestige that comes with it. To which I don't know, I don't have the data, but I suspect 60 or 70% of the world's population is looking at the Western world at this point going, what are you talking how depraved does a culture have to be that they think winning a football match, even if it's a prestigious one, is more important than the honor of your sister? Which is what Matarazzi did this himself. To the just how, I don't understand how you can think like that, they would think. And it, it was just such a fascinating real world experience. The newspapers' responses in different nations to that event illustrate how much weirder we are than we realize. You can see, I won't open this can of worms, but you can see it in our responses to COVID restrictions. Right? If, if care and harm is the only access you have, what do you do about the fact that no matter, you know, do, do you all stay, you know, locked down forever? Because it might hurt some, because somebody might catch something after something's after. Do you know what I mean? If that's the only frame you have, it's very difficult to articulate. And you can hear people doing it. And, you know, I don't have very much in common with the right, right wing of the Tory party. Um, but, okay, but they at times are the only people saying it on the radio in November. I remember hearing a, uh, an MP, a backbench MP saying, it does feel to me like this government is trying to abolish death. He said it was just a wonderful line. I was like, that's what I've been thinking for six months. Yeah, it was a very interesting comment. And I thought, now actually, you can say that if you're a far right, if you're a Brexit, because you're, like, you're cantankerous about everything. Um, and you basically go, oh, I don't really care because they can't fire me. But actually that, what it reflects is if you don't have any other moral axis for your decision-making, it's only, it's, could this harm somebody? The answer is, of course it could harm somebody. So could sneezing. Do you know what I mean? And the, the whole, I said I wouldn't go into it, and I have gone into it. How did that happen? Cancel culture, LGBT rights, and so on. It is 11 o'clock. I trust that that has given you some things to think about and some stuff to process. And... What I might do, would it be untoward if I said, let's stop for 20 minutes and then start at 20, pa uh, 20 past... Uh, no, is that no? Maybe that's the wrong way around. Why don't I? Okay, what if we truncate? Just if there are questions, what if we truncate the break by twenty minutes? Just do ten minutes now, if there are, because there might be there's and I, there's a lot of stuff there. You might not just say no. Let's go and get coffee. But if there is ten minutes of questions to do that, and then to have a twenty minute break and get Peter up at eleven thirty, is that all right? Anybody want to respond? I know there's a lot there. Luke Daviditis and his bath. Yes. 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 Are they therefore Right. So our attempts to reconstitute a sort of new kind of Christian community in as a subset of the broader, weirder world, ultimately all doomed to failure. So I it's not Rod Dreyer's Benedict option, for instance, or you're mentioning Jake and others. Yeah, okay. Um, I mean, of course, the answer is I don't know. I'm terrible at this sort of prediction game. I, I think that what I would, I think what guys like that would say if they, if we were interacting about it, might be, oh, shut up, you're English, you don't know what it's like. And, that, and then to be fair, the fact that that's, that I think we've had a lot more history of this than Americans have. I think it's, it's come, come up in America much more rapidly. So I think they've gone from being very Christian in many ways to very not in a very short space of time, whereas in Europe, it's just been a much more drip, 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 you know, water torture thing. 
So our contexts make us quite different on that. I suspect they would say, take Dre as an easier one because he maps out much more what he's talking about. In the end, if the only chance you have you're saying this society is ultimately, he would, he would say, I think what your, your question is a reason to do what he's attempting, because he would say in the end, this culture will collapse under its own weight. And at that point, there needs to be a new way of doing life and a new kind of community. And he would therefore draw much stronger Augustinian and Benedictine parallels and say, effectively, we are where Rome was now. And it's just a matter of time before the whole house falls in. And when it does, you're going to want a new community to start in the desert so that you can begin civilization again. Of course, I don't know whether or not that is what's going to happen. And I, I, I know that there'd be plenty of us whose our tradition, our spirituality would be more like, no, we just, you pray for revival. You trust that God will turn that around. And there'd be others of us who'd say, no, we have to get into the, into the institutions and into the, in order to try and work it from within and leaven the lump and all these things. And the problem is, I think you can find biblical pre, biblical you know, arguments for all of those responses. But as to which one is going to work, <laughs> if I knew that, I'd be making more money than I am now. I, re I really don't know. Um, but I suspect, he, I suspect someone like Rod and someone like Jake might say, no, I don't think, that's, I don't think what Andrew's saying is a, a reason to disagree with that claim. In some ways, it's a reason why it's important, because the society is a, it, it can't hold. Um, because it, effectively what's happening is, you're, Tom Wright's image, you are gradually sawing off the branch you're sitting on. You're making your foundations less and less Christian. And in the end, this is what Nietzsche said, is that basically you end up with post-Christian morality is not a, not a pretty sight. And I may have been Ross Douthat, I think he, in the New York Times, he's brilliant on this stuff. His book, The Age of Decadence, is really interesting on this. And I think it was him who said something like, yeah, about five years ago, hey, it, I think it might have even been before Trump, he said, if you don't like the religious rights, just wait till you meet the post-religious rights. There was a very interesting, and I can't remember, it was certainly long before the capital, you know, with the guy with the horns and all that. It was before that, long before that, but I think it might even have been pre-Trump. And in some ways, it's that, that's the idea, is that your, your foundations for morality are eventually going to be lost, and when they are, who's going to hold the Christian vision? So I think I'm not a, a, I'm not a Rod Dreher type person by temperament, so I wouldn't do that. But I think I have, I do, I can see why, I think his diagnosis of the problem is still not as far off as, as, as might be implied by some of what I'm saying. Yeah, so what's your response when people say on the wrong side of history? Um, it depends on the context, because sometimes it might just be, you know, <laughs> the, the, actually the actual response is very rarely what you say in a conference that your response would be. Um, <laughs> because it might just be, no. But, um, so I think a couple of comments about that. I think, one is the, the, the comment, Tom Holland's very good on this. He, he said that language is entirely Christian, right? The idea that history is starting here and heading there towards a world of greater justice and inclusion for all is a Christian idea. So you're using a Christian idea to attack another Christian idea. You're not saying this is a secular scheme versus a Christian one. And so what the Christian can be at risk of doing is trying to defend what they perceive to be a non-progressive vision because that must be the Christian answer because the progressives are the baddies and say, no, actually, the progressives got that idea from Christianity. The idea that, you know, well, I said it at the start of the conference, you know, he has brought down the mighty from their seat and exalted the, from their seat, their seat, and exalted the humble and meek is, that's a, that, history's going there. One day, the kingdoms of the world will be the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. So that's where the world's going. And to get on the right side, we believe, in fact, the, being on the right side of history is effectively what Paul is appealing to when he's saying, one day, you're going to, see the Athenians, God's going to judge the world by a man who's, whom he's appointed. What are you going to say then? You're like, oh, better get on the right side of him. And so that, in a sense, is a Christian appeal. That doesn't always, I'm not saying that's going to help the person who's asking him and saying, in the end, it's just too soon to say, isn't it? 
you know, always think this, this lovely, I never know quite how apocryphal it is, but the, 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 I quote it all the time, but Mao Zedong's finance minister, there's a guy called Zhu Enlai, and he's asked in somewhere in the 60s, what do you think are going to be the results of the French Revolution, have been the results of the French Revolution? He just pauses and goes, too soon to say. Which I always think is a fantastic answer. And, um, and I'm like, but that's what I feel about, you know, that's what I feel about, you know, un annoyingly the story is spoiled by the fact that I'm told that the French Revolution they were asking about was the 68 one. But I, I tell it like that because then you get the impact of the story and then, oh, unfortunately the truth is a bit more dull. But I think it is in this, in the big scale, you know, it, it's just too soon. I don't know, just know the right side of history. There was a time, and Lewis is really good on this in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. You know, I think, you know, when they arrive on the, the island where they've still got slavery, and they're like, I don't understand, how can you possibly own slaves? And they're like, this is ridiculous, of course you've got to own slaves. Look, at slavery, the whole economy is powered by it. And at one point, the, the guy turns to Caspian and says, have you got no notion of development, of progress? And Caspian says, yeah, I've seen both of them in an egg. We call it going bad in Narnia. It's just a wonderful <laughs> response. Like, you know what I mean? You can't, who's to say whether progress or development is a positive? It just depends what you are progressing to. And similarly with conservatism, what are you conserving? Is it worth conserving or not? Um, so I would, yeah, maybe I'd give them a copy of The Void of the Dawn Trail. I don't know, I, it depends on the context, but those, those are a couple of comments on that. Okay, so Jonathan Haidt's got these six moral foundations. As weirder people, we broadly gravitate towards the top one and a little bit the second one, and maybe the sixth one, Haidt would say, a little bit. But, but are all six of them valid? And are all six of them even biblical? And the answer, are they all biblical, is absolutely yes. There are whole stories in scripture that have got no reference at all to care and harm as a moral framework and have got an awful lot to do with authority and subversion, aren't they? Or, or you've got two harmful figures, but it's clear that the, that the goody is the one who is being subverted and the subverter is the baddie. And, that, that, and, dis, and sanctity and degradation, obviously the whole, we've been talking about the temple for a lot of the last couple of days. And so yes, clearly they, all, they are all borne out in different ways in, in scripture. I think to say, how then do you, like, I think there's a pastoral challenge here and an apologetic one. I think the pastoral challenge is to draw out the moral matrix for Christians so that we are, you know, it's effectively giving people permission to experience their moral intuitions and saying, that thing you feel, that that ultimately is a dishonoring way to behave, that's a good, that's a biblical instinct that you've got, even though in our culture that framework isn't recognized. I don't, I haven't done the sex with a chicken story on a Sunday morning message, and I probably won't. But, but actually, I, but I might, depending on what, I'm, I might to make a particular point, because I think, I think, I don't know, I think people, would you think I'd get away with it, Jace? I'm not sure. <laughs> you think I would? I think, I think in the right context, it might, because what I think I would go is, that actually, that is a valid intuition, and, I, and, and it's based on a moral framework, even though it's not the moral framework that our word would use, a lot of, I mean, Leviticus, you read Leviticus from beginning to end, you find that kind of moral framework everywhere. And it's even just obvious that certain things are just, that's just disgusting. It's obviously so. And I think particularly in, in our context, very diverse church, it would be almost inappropriate not to appeal to those things. Because obviously we've got lots of folk in our church who have all six of those a lot and are adjusting to the fact that the secular world their children are being raised in doesn't use many of them. And is trying to work out, how do you, how do, you do that? Um, so pastorally, I think you definitely can teach it and reinforce it. And you're not trying to make them feel it. You're trying to say, you know, you feel that? That's okay. That's a good thing. So it's, even if it wouldn't work on social media. Apologetically, it's more of a challenge because people just simply don't have the framework or to the extent that they do, they've suppressed it. And so I think what we're often trying to do is to make arguments that are 
grounded on some of the other axes and try and best we can present them, at least at the first point of contact, as an issue about care and harm or fairness of cheating. Which, to, and to take the trans, the trans rights in the Olympics is a good contemporary example of that, where they're saying, this is actually, if there is a fairness cheating point here. Like this, this, you know, this person, let's just say person, right? So I don't go even with the sex, but this person is a lot stronger than they would be if they hadn't been born with a penis. And as a result, that is unfair on the many people who weren't born with a penis and are trying to compete in female weightlifting. And that, and actually, that's actually become, already have become, and that's harmful to those women. And therefore, do you see what I mean? So it's all, now that ultimately, that isn't really the reason why I think that's not something you should do. I'm, my, I've, got, I've got other issues here about sanctity and degradation, actually, would be, as I'd have other reasons, but you're presenting a case in a way that is more amenable to the listeners and to the, to the now, that's a, that's just the one that occurred to me, but there'd be many others, and I, I think that's, yeah, that's an important challenge for our generation. Thank you.